The field of local climate action has a few icons, pioneers who have led the way. Today, I'm talking with one of them, Cambridge, Massachusetts, longtime environmental planner, John Bolduc. As John winds down his storied career, we have lots to chat about, including what it was like to be on the cutting edge of so many climate solutions. You know, we're a kind of community where there's some uh, ability to take a risk and fail uh, uh, and learn from it. You know, we've had our, our lessons uh, around that, but they've always been learning experiences. Um, and then sometimes they've been successful. <laughs> so, um, so that's been good. Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast, highlighting how local governments are leading the way on climate action and sustainability solutions. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent more than two decades working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, and thriving communities. I started this podcast to connect you with the key people on the ground, putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren, and really happy to be back uh, on the stage, if you will, bringing our podcast back after a, a little bit of a hiatus during this global pandemic we've been experiencing, but super excited to kick us back off here in 2022 and heading into Earth Month. Uh, with one of my good friends and longtime colleagues, John Bolduck from the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. John, how are you today? Great. Nice to be talking to you. Yeah, and thank you so much for taking the time. Our theme for this podcast is really about talking about the evolution of the climate field over the last 20 years. And uh, as many folks in this field know, you have been a pioneer in the local climate action space. I know you're very humble, but I uh, remember you in the early 2000s. And uh, of course, we worked together, both being in the, the Boston area. And um, I think it's really important uh, to celebrate your, the great work that you've been doing and leading because 20 years ago, things were very different. We didn't have the resources and the support and even the data that we have today. And so I think it's really important to highlight and help folks that are newer to the field see kind of what the evolution has been and maybe if there's some lessons learned for moving forward. So John, why don't you just get us started by telling us about, you know, what was that hook for you? How did you get into climate change work? Right. Well, uh, so I go way back even before Cambridge. So, you know, basically my career started in the mid eighties. And, uh, when I came out of grad school, I, I, uh, there weren't any climate change jobs, right? It wasn't an issue then. Um, and there wasn't even really that, that much work uh, in terms of local, the local environmental field. At the time, one of the things that you could do uh, was be a conservation agent or administrator. So I did that for 12 years, working on wetlands protection and uh, open space planning. Um, but I was always interested in cities um, and, uh, the urban environment and uh, the role that cities can play in sustainability. So that that drew me to uh, to Cambridge. But so I, I came here in ni 1997, and when we started, when I started, um, climate change was not on the agenda. Um, uh, you know, we we're doing other things around development and environmental impacts and. Uh, hazardous waste contamination and things like that. Um, and so what got us started was this group 
that you know well because you used to work for them, ICLE, uh, the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, at least at think, that time. I don't time. think they've used that acronym in the past 20 years. <laughs> right. Uh, but they came out on a recruiting trip to the East Coast to sign more cities up for their cities for a climate protection program. And so we were among the first four uh, municipalities in Massachusetts that joined. Um, and that got us started. But, you know, our, our reason for joining that is we were more interested in the issue of sustainable development. And we liked the idea of thinking about greenhouse gases as the way to frame that because it captured, you know, a lot of different um, aspects of uh, development. Um, and, you know, what was really great was that ICLE basically offered this program in a can where, you know, a five-step process, you can start with doing a greenhouse gas emissions inventory, and they even uh, supported us with a paid intern uh, to do a lot of the work. So, you know, that was a real catalyst for us and got us going. But you know, I would say in the beginning, it was more about us um, uh, looking at this as a way to think about sustainability broadly. And I think for me, what kind of turned my direction and made me focus a lot more on climate change itself was really learning how how climate change works, the mechanics of it, you know, especially the idea that it's a stocks and flows problem, right, where you have emissions and they build up in the atmosphere, and it's cumulative. Um, and that led me to understand, well, you know, this isn't a regular kind of environmental pollution problem that, um, you know, because it, it's a problem that builds up and, um, and uh, is, is basically becomes irreversible if you don't do something. Um, it leads to profound changes in all of our environmental systems as well as our social systems. Um, and so I realized, you know, this is, this is a big problem. This is like, you know, almost an existential problem. Um, and so, almost. well, most of them, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I'm holding out hope, but, um, but um, so, you know, in, in that thinking, um, you know, uh, was shared here where I work in the community development department. So climate change itself became a much more central focus of, of our work. And so that's really, um, you know, how we, got going and how we really came to focus on climate change as a central issue. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting the, the way you kind of frame it for the fact that it's cumulative, it's building up in the atmosphere and different than so many other environmental issues, right? At the time, you couldn't see it. You couldn't, right. in, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, we weren't experiencing the impacts either. And so I talk about this a lot too. And, and, and you remember, I know you remember this because you'd go to conferences and if we were trying to describe the impacts of climate change, everyone's like, well, we need a visual. And it would be the polar bear on the iceberg floating away, right? And, um, and I did, actually, I think you might've been up at this conference too, up in St. John, Newfoundland. And they say that actually happens. Like, polar bears will land on their shores and they push them right back out. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, but 
you know, as tugging at the heart as that is for some of us, um, it, it didn't tie it to people's day-to-day -day behaviors. Downtown Cambridge does not have a polar bear walking through it every day, right? We don't, most people will never see a polar bear in their life outside of a zoo. So, you know, we weren't really making that connection to what's happening in the day-to-day. -day. And so I think folks were still, it was hard for them to, to wrap their heads around it. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, that was another sort of big shift in thinking is that we started out approaching it as an environmental problem, right? Um, and of course it, it is, but it's so much more than that. And so I think we've come to think of it more as a social problem. Um, you know, it's not just about technology, it's really about the impacts on people, um, and, and different ways that that can happen. And also that basically it has to be a social response to the problem. Um, and so, um, you know, so that's guided how we go about doing our work. And I agree that the polar bear might've been compelling to a few of us, but um, we don't have any polar bears here, but we have a lot of people and, and those are the people are be affected. But back then the effects we were th still thinking of the effects of something that's going to come in the future and probably decades away, right? And then, but it was really within a few years of getting started on the work where I think you know, we, we could see the effects being more discernible in our area, right? You could yeah. see that sea, sea level was creeping up. You could see that the winters were changing. You could see new species uh, coming into the area and leaving. Uh, the region because of changes in temperature and, and precipitation patterns. Um, and so I think that was a surprise that it was on us so quickly. Yeah, and I remember, you know, when I was working in the city of Medford, the mayor would constantly say to folks, you know, we've had six 100-year storms in the last two years. That's not right. There's something <laughs> going on with that, you know, and in, in that was one data point we had back then that, you know, of course we communicated the heck out of that to try to get folks to think about this. Um, but there really has been, and I'm so glad you mentioned the social component because I'll be honest, I, you know, I was the undergrad in environmental science and was more on the wildlife side. And I'm like, you know what? Humans are the worst. We just come <laughs> in and destroy this place and we're ruining it for the polar bears. Um, but you and I both share a uh, similar alma mater in graduate school. We both went to um, the Urban Environmental Policy and Planning Program at Tufts. And that's where I really started to appreciate that social side um, because I hadn't really had as much engagement there. And I think you're right on with kind of the evolution of this field and the fact that getting it out of being just an environmental issue. I, we're still working on that, I think, from a messaging standpoint. Right. Uh, if you ask anybody in my family what my career is, uh, Kim does the environment. That's exactly how they say it. And I'm like, yeah. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. But um, understanding that this is so much more about, frankly, our civilization and our survival on this planet, um, but really being able to look at chronic stressors that are making it difficult for some community members to even think about what an impact of climate change means to them because they just don't have the luxury of doing that. And um, I think that shift not only A, was essential because um, obviously it's needed, um, but B, it opened the topic up to so many more people. And so it made it easy to 
bring people into a discussion because we have so many topics to discuss. And as you said, it really is part of sustainability. You can't be sustainable. You can't be resilient if you're not addressing climate change, period. I mean, that's where we're at now. And so making sure that, you know, especially when I worked at ICLEI, traveling all over the country in the early 2000s, talking about this early to mid, like going to Texas, we were not talking about climate change in 2007. <laughs> you know, we would talk about air quality. We would talk about public health. Um, so I do think that those broader linkages that it makes are so important and is one of the really big evolutions of the field. Yeah, well, yeah, we learned that that lesson that we needed to frame uh, climate change as a public health and economic issue that mattered to people, because uh, obviously the polar bears don't vote and uh, the people do. And so I think in doing that, that, you know, that made it more relevant. I mean, it, it helped, you know, using the word lightly, that there were uh, things happening that helped people see what climate change means. And I, you know, I think Hurricane Katrina was the first event I recall that was really like a, a game changer where people realized this was not like a normal hurricane uh, and that there was something else behind it, right? Um, and they, they could see, you know, the, how devastating it was to New Orleans and you know, how the city got depopulated by that and, and took a long time to even recover. Um, and so we could start saying, well, you know, that kind of thing could happen here. Um, and then people could start to, to uh, relate to it. But, you know, and I think the other thing, when we started, we, we only worked on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, right? We, yeah. we start out thinking, oh, we can prevent the problem, right? If we just reduce our emissions. And of course we had no idea how much we <laughs> reduce the emissions. Uh, our first goal was reducing by 20% below 1990. By um, 2010. By 2010. By 2010. We all had 2010 <laughs> targets, and we kind of just all ignored the fact that 2010 <laughs> came, and we were like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's the way it started. And you couldn't even really talk about adaptation, right? Uh, when it, we wrote our first climate action plan, we had a a task force we worked with, which is the way we always do things in Cambridge. And we, we talked about it explicitly. We said, well, should we include adaptation in the plan? And task force said no, <laughs> because it would be like admitting defeat that you couldn't yes. solve the problem. Yeah. And so we left it out. Um, but you know, the science changed uh, and told us, yeah, it, it's too late. There's a certain amount of climate change. You, that's unavoidable we're going to have to adapt to and so i think when we start working on adaptation doing vulnerability assessments that also help to visualize what climate change means locally um, in those public health and economic terms and that then comes back to i think helping drive climate mitigation yeah, and that's such an important point. And I remember, you know, the environmental groups, you'd get yelled at if you were talking about adaptation, like you're giving up. It's like, oh, I thought I was being realistic. But, um, you know, it also, and I love how you're framing that, it's like it helped localize it, it helped folks see it. But I also remember, because my, my role in Medford was in public works initially before I had my own department. And I mean, of course, in Medford, 
they were going along with what I would put out there as much as, you know, appeasing me as much as possible, but no, they were, <laughs> they were driving things. But I remember public works was often, you know, when I was at Ickley working with other communities, public works was often like the stopper when we're talking about reducing emissions and they often have control of so much. But when we started looking at impacts and experiencing those, um, that's when public works finally started to get it because they understand being first responders. They understand responding to an issue that's happening right now. They're not like planners that have the luxury of visioning out what the next 30, 50 years are gonna be like, right? They have to deal with the here and now. And so that was one thing that I thought brought more people to the table. Um, yeah. The fact that we were seeing those impacts and we needed other departments to, now they needed explanations on like, wait, what's going on and how do I start preparing for this? Yeah. yeah. Our in Cambridge, our public works department has been a, a key partner in all of this because they manage all the municipal facilities as well as um, all the infrastructure. Um, and so they're, they early on were totally on board with, with the issue. And so it was key in reducing our municipal carbon footprint as well as all our adaptation work. Um, and so, you know, having having partners like that, um, I think is, is critical because it's not something you can silo into uh, a single uh, office. Um, everyone's, you know, basically got to be doing it. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I, I, I love that, you know, we've got this background of, you know, you've been in the community development department. Cambridge is such a great example of the departments really working collaboratively on this issue. Now we have so many, even little tiny towns in Massachusetts that they feel like they need a sustainability coordinator. Um, they wanna get somebody that's running that and driving that in their community, hopefully working to get integration, right? Because we know how easy it is to be a silo. But you know, with so many folks coming into this field, um, two things I want your thoughts on. One is my experience lately, especially in hiring and with interns and full-time staff out of like grad school, I'm finding folks have a much greater interest on the adaptation side. And, or, but they'll say resilience, but they really mean adaptation. And I always say to them, how can we be resilient if we're not reducing our emissions? <laughs> Shouldn't you, you know, it's harder and harder for us to find people that are interested in or have the skills to do a greenhouse gas inventory, which of course, this is our major metric. We need to be able to track that. Um, has that been your experience as well? And what are your thoughts on that? And how do we get folks to kind of rethink, you know, resilience really is mitigation and adaptation working together. Right. Well, I mean, you know, as we talked about, we started out only doing mitigation and then adaptation came along. You have to do both, right? So um, you have to mitigate so you can avoid the worst effects. Um, but you're going to have to adapt to some level of change. Um, so hopefully you're, you're adapting to less than you would if you take no action. Um, I mean, the other challenge too is, you know, I always think about the mitigation side is, you know, doing our part to you know, take responsibility for our, our small contribution to the problem. That's a global problem, right? And what any one community can't really affect the global problem. We all have to do it together. But adaptation is local. That's mm. where where the effects are and where you have to where you see see climate change uh, 
upfront and where you you know you can take action that does make a local difference. Um, but you definitely have to do do both. I mean, we you know when I started, I was the only non transportation person in my office, and so um, I had a colleague, uh, Rosalie Anders, who was spending about half her time um, on this. So you know we were the staff basically. Here, but <laughs> yes, yeah, you knew Rosalie, and so, uh, but since then the team's grown here. So we have I can't remember now. We have like six people now, uh, you know, working mostly on mitigation. And I'm actually then I started to focus on adaptation. Um, so you know, we've been fortunate to have a good team that's working on on the make the mitigation side still. And our latest efforts are around trying to establish a building. Uh, performance standards based on emissions. Um, Which we're all looking towards, <laughs> <that's right. laughs> as always. <laughs> right. It's it's the new thing. You know, it's like half a dozen cities that have done it. So it's it's definitely a new thing. And, but I think it's the way things are going to have to be. Um, so, you know, so that that's moving. But yeah, definitely you have to do both. You know, it's, a, you know, one of the things about staffing, I think, I mean, there are the challenges of getting people, especially in the current job market. But, um, but when we were out there, there weren't very many of us, right? I think when Cambridge joined Ickley, we were like the 55th U.S. city, and most of them were on the West Coast, and especially California. Um, and so, you know, there weren't very many staff. But today, every state has has people. Uh, uh, working on it ex in explicit roles, right? It's not like an extra thing they do with another part of their job. Um, and, you know, even as you said, even in Massachusetts, a lot of smaller communities, like I actually live in Concord, Mass, and we hired a sustainability director about uh, four years ago for the first time. And you did the climate action plan for, for Concord. Uh, but um, but there's a lot of communities, including communities I never would have thought of as wanting to do this kind of thing, hiring those kinds of staff, right? So there's a big demand and you know, that's sort of one part of this issue that gives me a lot of hope is there are just so many people out there working on it, whether they're in local or state government um, or in the private sector, uh, you know, most Universities have sustainability offices now, I think. Uh, lots of businesses have sustainability staff. Um, and so, you know, there are thousands of people out there, right? Um, I mean, you used to be like, basically know everybody Hundreds. in the field. <laughs> 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 but but now, now you don't. So, um, so I think that, you know, th that's a part that gives me hope because hopefully with all this effort going in that we move things from the bottom up um, to get where we need to go. Yeah, and I think, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I think the, I've had two staff recently get tugged away from me to go take, have their hand at being a, a local municipal sustainability director. And um, 
which I'm happy for them. And they, you know, they always say, well, Kim, you always say you're a better consultant because you were one of our clients, you know, like you were a municipal sustainability director. And I'm like, well, yes, that's true. And I'm going to stop saying that because <laughs> <laughs> losing stuff. but I totally appreciate the interest in wanting to know what is it like to be in your client's shoes and, and understanding the balance of everything. You know, most of our local governments, even the largest cities are completely understaffed. They have far too much to do. Um, everyone's coming in with good intentions, but you can get pulled in a thousand different directions and some communities more so than others are really driven by political will, which can ebb and flow. Um, so it, I do think it's great and it's such a positive that there's so many more folks in this space now, but we're also at a point where we need to be doing much more, much faster. Um, yeah. And I think one of the one of the great things that you know Cambridge has brought to this space, and, and certainly you and your team being the leads there, is you've you've kind of paved the way for a lot of folks. You Cambridge was always willing to test out that new program, uh, so that other communities who maybe just didn't have the political will or just aren't that kind of community, like we could see how did Cambridge do it, and then learn from your lessons and move things forward. And, and you know that was kind of the one of the strengths of the ICLEI network in the early days and now USDN more. Um, but just the idea that, especially when, as you say, they were like more like dozens of us <laughs> rather than <laughs> thousands, um, really being able to hear, how did you get that done? And what, what were those lessons learned? And so, you know, I think most people know Cambridge is quite the leader in this space. Um, but I think it'd be easy, you know, the early days weren't that easy to get these things moving. Um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the projects you're most proud of and what it's like to be on the cutting edge. A lot of our communities are very comfortable being a couple steps behind Cambridge. Um, so what is it like to kind of be leading something that, you know, and again, in the early 2000s, we didn't have all the resources we have today. It was kind of like, we kind of made a lot of this up as we went, right? So right. it'd be interesting to hear from your perspective, especially working in a community that was progressive and wanting to, hey, let's test the waters and see how we can figure this out and come up with the right solution. Yeah. Well, even when we did our first climate action plan in 2002, um, we knew that, you know, in terms of mitigation, whatever we did, it wasn't really going to matter on its own, right? Um, but, you know, we, we did want to take responsibility for our contribution to the problem. But the, the, the other role we knew we could, could be involved in was um, trying to develop or innovate new approaches that hopefully others um, uh, could adopt, you know, and, you know, not to be arrogant, that you know we were going to invent every all the solutions but you know in cambridge it's a kind of a unique place in a way right we're a small city but we have mit and harvard um, we have a big entrepreneurial community community um, and we have a, a community of residents that you know hasn't questioned climate change you know i've never had to argue that climate change is a real thing it's just uh, assumed that that's right. And so th that atmosphere, I think, enables us maybe to take a few more uh, risks than other places have been able to. I, I mean, we certainly also benefit from other places doing something first and then we'll, we'll follow. Um, so we're, we're, we're in that as well. But 
you know, that's definitely uh, uh, something where, uh, you know, we're kind of community where there's some uh, ability to take a risk and fail uh, uh, and learn from it. You know, we've had our, our lessons uh, around that, but they've always been learning experiences. Um, and then sometimes they've been successful. <laughs> so, um, so that's been good. You know, I think in the past, you know, five to 10 years, we've, we've started to become much more sophisticated <laughs> about how to tackle the problem. It's, it's, as you know, it's not, it's really complicated because you're, uh, um, having to figure out how to do something, you know, set a policy that's going to affect people in terms of costs or imposing some burden on people. And so you also have to develop support for the policy. So maybe people will say, you know, really want to do that, but I understand why you're making me do it. Um, and so that you're not spending too much time, you know, fighting over, over these things. Um, so, so uh, you know, I think even with green, me you know, measuring has been really important to us. Uh, we've tried to measure lots of stuff. I'm a definite believer in that, you know, the adage that you, you can't manage what you don't measure. Um, and so, you know, besides greenhouse gas emissions or measuring building energy use and uh, vehicle miles traveled by um, our, our cars and trucks, uh, um, and then also all the stuff you have to do for adaptation, like urban forest canopy and modeling future flood levels, all that stuff. And that that all helps a lot to um, help you build those roadmaps so that you can be strategic in the actions that you you decide to pursue because you can't do everything, right? So, um, and also I think helps inform people who think, well, you should just get out there and do something, right? It's, it's just not, not that easy. Um, and so if you do good planning, then you can create that, that solid roadmap and, and then be going in the right direction that's going to be effective. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's the approach that we kind of tried to take here. So I'm going to see if I, I can put you on the spot. Is there one? Is there one project or one initiative, one policy that really was like, yeah, this was big, this was huge, that you were really feeling like super proud of? I mean, obviously you've been involved in so many <laughs> there in yeah. Cambridge. Well, I mean, I really can't focus on one because it's a multifaceted problem, right? So I'll, I'll name a few. So. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I think our first climate action plan was uh, a milestone, right? Um, and it's very impressive. I mean, it was far more impressive than what I threw together in Medford. Absolutely. <laughs> you guys actually had a process. I just kind of whipped it together because I was told that's what I had to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, when, what I was surprised by with the, the climate action plan is when we put it out there, it wasn't just like a document with some technical information in it. It, it, it became uh, a more symbolic um, thing where people would point to it and say, well, we have a plan, we have a goal, and I'm going to sign on to that and, and do what I need to do that relates to it. So like, you know, our, our public works department without any prodding from us said, 
you know, started citing the climate action plan for uh, budget requests around facilities improvements and, and some of their, their other programs. Um, and I think also um, some private entities like universities and uh, some businesses also cited it um, to um, you know, justify their getting involved in some of this work. And so that, I was always surprised how that happened because we didn't really plan for it, right? <laughs> Community <laughs> so, um, engagement on climate action plans in the early 2000s was very different than it is today. Right. And I always say to people that serendipity is a big part of this, right? That you can't anticipate everything. You just have to keep moving forward. Then things will happen that help propel you further along. Um, you know, sometimes they're bad things like some climate disaster, but sometimes they're, they're good things like the new partner will emerge out of the blue that you didn't think of. Um, so I would say that um, I think um, our you know, staying on the mitigation side in 2014, we passed a building energy use disclosure ordinance, which was the building benchmarking requirement for larger buildings in Cambridge. So you know, most, most of our emissions are from the larger buildings. So um, that, and that was sort of the first requirement that we put in place. And now we're building on that to establish performance standards. That benchmarking um, too was really so important because um, you know different local governments in different states have different authorities as it relates to building codes. And I wonder if you wanna give a little tidbit on you know, Cambridge's approach here that, you know it really was utilizing some of our local government tools, but in different ways than we had maybe applied them in the past. Right. So it's that thinking out of the box that we always appreciate from Cambridge. Right. Well, I mean, things evolve, right? When we did the first emissions inventory, it told us maybe what should have been obvious, but most of our emissions were from building energy use, right? But there was on paper, the numbers were there. So, you know, 80% of our emissions are from that. Uh, and of course, we had no programs around building, building <laughs> energies. Um, and so obviously the first thing we had to do was think about, well, how are we going to establish building energy programs? And so a lot of efforts initially were around voluntary programs, incentives, all of those things. And then around 2007, I think it was, we tried to launch the Cambridge Energy Alliance, which was going to be this the community campaign about around building retrofits and bringing in technical expertise and financing and using our energy services model. For a lot of reasons that didn't work out, but we learned a lot from, from that effort. And then this idea of benchmarking ordinances. So we, we of course, weren't the first to think of that. Um, there was an idea that came from the Institute for Market Transformation in DC and we were following that in a few cities, New York and Washington DC actually was the first to adopt and New York City was the first to implement their requirement. And, but we were fortunate in that IMT uh, let us get involved in uh, some networking and learning and then provide us technical support to develop our ordinance. And I, we, you know, for a long time were the smallest city in the U.S. to have a benchmarking requirement. There are a number of smaller communities now that have these as well. 
course, um, small from a population standpoint, but yeah. anybody who knows Cambridge, that's you right. have a lot of very big buildings. That's right. There. That's right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, we, 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 we have, we're a very dense city of a lot of buildings, a lot of energy use. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that's how that benchmarking ordinance was put into fact in, in 2014. And then it didn't require any action. Um, but there was a, a provision in the ordinance that we had to uh, analyze the results and see if putting this information into the marketplace about building performance changed behavior. So there was some, we saw some improvement in building performance over time. I don't think you can attribute it all to the ordinance, but, um, but it, it still wasn't enough to uh, achieve the level of emissions reductions at, at the pace we needed. Um, and so that then, you know, led to the next stage, which was, well, I got to establish requirements. So, you know, the ordinance is really organized around energy, but for a lot of reasons, we can't enact um, local requirements around building energy performance because of state preemption. So we pivoted toward focusing on emissions. And um, and so a few other cities you know, were ahead of us on this. So we followed them, including Boston. Um, but, um, you know, that our... Uh, performance standards in this before the city council now. So we expect something will be adopted relatively soon this year. And, uh, you know, that'll be the next stage, which will affect, you know, at least 1100 um, buildings in, in Cambridge. Amazing. So obviously you have so much to be proud of. And, you know, I have really, just feel privileged to have had the chance to work with you for so many years in different capacities and different ways. Um, you know, I think as you noted, there's so many new folks coming into this field and, you know, what, what do you see as the next steps here? Uh, folks may not know that you're kind of heading towards your retirement. Um, I'm sure you'll still be playing an active role in this space because, uh, you know, I, I, like I always say to folks, like, this isn't really a job. We kind of are just this becomes a lifeline, right? Like how can we not do what we need to do to address something that we know is so important to the future of humanity, really? So I know we'll still have you around, but I wonder if you could give some thoughts for folks that are maybe just getting started. Like, what do you think are the next steps for local governments and climate sustainability? And, you know, what are the roles for, for cities? Um, we know that federal governments, national aid, you know, nations aren't, all moving at the speed we need to with what kind of a, you know, outlook right. do you have for folks? Right. Well, obviously the, the challenge is daunting and the new IPCC report is not, not good news, but um, it, it just means we got to start working even harder than we have been. I, mean, I think some, you know, there's a lot of work that's happened and we have to keep building on that and, and, uh, and trying to try to make progress. I mean, I think there are some hopeful signs in terms of renewable energy um, is um, uh, is developing, you know, relatively quickly. Um, you know, we're looking forward to our first offshore wind farms in Massachusetts. Um, finally, soon, finally, and with a lot of economic benefits that 
you know, go along with that. Um, so, you know, I think there were some bright spots. Um, I think some other um, areas that, you know, are emerging that um, people, you know, can think about and how they would, would be involved. You know, one is something you've mentioned already, is social equity has emerged in the last few years, really. Um, so, you know, we, we have to do our planning knowing that uh, climate change doesn't affect everyone the same way and that everyone doesn't have the same capacity to uh, take advantage of the clean energy economy. So we have to make provisions um, for that. Um, I think also my feeling is that we have to move beyond the idea that we're going to get to where we need to be through incentives only, that mandates, unfortunately, are required because we don't have all the time in the world. Um, we have a pretty narrow window to really get a handle on this. So to achieve that pace of change in terms of reducing emissions and getting away from fossil fuels um, is going to require mandates, but you know we have to do it in a way where we build support for it because you can't really enforce your way uh, toward um, the achievements that you're going to have to um, have building owners and other stakeholders um, being partners and doing this. And so I think mandates can help level the playing field for a lot of uh, you know, businesses and other organizations that need, need to do the work. So you can't expect the one group to do something when their competitor isn't doing it. So, um, but I think mandates both in terms of mitigation and um, in adaptation are going to become more important. So I have to figure out how to do that well. Um, and then I think, you know, a huge thing, of course, is how are we going to pay for all this? Um, you know, when, when I think about all the buildings and infrastructure we have to retrofit, I mean, even at a a community the size of Cambridge, you're talking billions of dollars, right? Yeah. And yeah. I don't think people have really come to grips with that. And so government is not going to be able to pay for all of it. So we really have to figure out how to harness private capital to do a lot of the, the work. Maybe we get rid of those fossil fuel subsidies. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That would help, right? That would not... definitely help. <laughs> for sure. But there are, you know, there are, I think the work that Ithaca is doing is actually inspirational. You know, no one was looking at what Ithaca was doing and, and then all of a sudden um, they're raising all kind of money for that. And then uh, the, they're working with Block Power, which is a really innovative um, business that's retrofitting buildings, especially multifamily buildings. So they have a really great model, I think, that um, has a lot of um, possibilities in it. And so you know, those kinds of innovations we're going to have to count on. And that's where, you know, my thinking about serendipity is important, right? I would never have thought of Ithaca or Block Power a couple <laughs> of years ago. So, It's a good point, too. And I think, you know, at the local level, there's just so much opportunity for innovation. And when we just open up our minds to that and give the space for it, allow the political will for it, um, you know, of course, 
myself and KLA were so much about the communication and the engagement. How are we talking about this to people? Uh, one of the things I've said so many times is, you know, since I started in the field 20 years ago, I feel like we've almost made it harder for people to engage. Now, more people know about it because it's on the news and we're seeing things, but so many professionals in our field, like now they're getting PhDs in climate science. I'm like, okay, now that means you can talk to even less people. You're using these words right. that I don't even understand. Right. And so, so much about our work is like getting down to the individual. And one of the things I've been seeing a lot of is with particularly like Gen Z, and I don't want to call out a generation. I don't, I feel like I'm the old lady now, the Gen <laughs> X are calling out people, but oh. it's so many folks are, when I talk to them about climate change, they're like, yeah, it's such an important issue. We really need corporations to step up. And I'm like, yes, and uh, you do too. I mean, That's we right. do not have time. Everybody needs to be doing something. And, you know, when we start looking at the numbers of some of the work we're doing with our clients now with the pathways analysis for how to get to your emissions reductions, it's crazy, John. It's literally like, okay, yeah, by 2025, three years from now, 20% of your homes need to be electrified. <laughs> oh, and by the way, at the same time, we have to be cleaning the grid much faster. Right. Um, you know, and then you start looking at the 2030, 2040 benchmarks to get to zero by 2050. If we do not have that exponential, aggressive reductions in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make 2050. There's not going to be some new technology that comes up in those 20 years to just suck all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Right. So it's, that whole sense of urgency, I feel, is um, it's there, but it's not enough. Right. There's the urgency and people realizing the scale of the, the challenge so that we we apply the resources we need to apply. I mean, I think there's, there are efforts to do this at the federal level, but you know, I think it's going to have to go way beyond that, that um, it's going to have to involve the private sector. Um, you know, I think in the environmental field, you know, we often think of it as the good guys versus the bad guys. And there's certainly bad guys in this story, but, um, but we're going to have to look at the private sector as partners because, you know, they're the ones that are going to be able to deploy the capital quickly um, and um, enable um, the kind of transformation to happen that that, that we're going to need. So, you know, 20 plus years doing this work. Um, I remember our days, you know, when we get our little group in Massachusetts together, be like me and you and maybe Stephanie Chicarello out in Amherst <laughs> would come drive out. Uh, who else do we have? Paul Shoemaker in Boston. Yeah. Uh, Ginny, uh, now Spytel, uh, who had been in Brookline. Yeah. I think that was our little crew. Yeah, there, there were a few. We had someone, a couple of people in Burlington, Vermont. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah Northampton. Actually, oh, yeah. Wayne, it's still pretty active. Wayne, Wayne Feed. Um, yeah, but it was a small group. And yeah, back then, networking was um, meeting in person. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, there was, was no essential. Zoom. <laughs> yeah, no, and it was essential because, uh, you know, there were like six of us. <laughs> right. But if but, you could imagine like that John, John Bolduck in 2002, you just got your you know climate action plan out, like where you are now and everything you know now and where we landed, um, 
these IPCC reports, you know, any everything that we've heard about is like anything that was wrong was that how fast it's how fast it's going. That's the only part of the science that was wrong. Um, and frankly, I don't. I think they were just trying to not scare people. But yeah, you know, other if you could go back in time, you know, what would you what would you say to yourself? What would you tell yourself to focus on or to prioritize, knowing kind of where we're at twenty years later? Yeah. Well, I might tell myself, ask myself if I knew what I was getting in. <laughs> but, um, but, but we all have to work on this stuff. So, I mean, I think one thing I would have done is probably engage earlier and more often with residents in terms of especially engaging residents who don't typically work on or talk to us about climate change. When we, you know, hear from the environmentalists in the community all the time, right? But you can't keep talking to the same people, and this has to be a broad effort. And so, I think I would say, do more sooner than that. Um, you know, it's always easy as a you know professional planner or a person do you know to sit in the office and focus on the technical analysis, which of course is some of the fun work but uh, but you know in the end it has to be engaging real people and participating in the solution so there's that and i think i would tell myself uh, well, i probably have to go back earlier than, than that but to learn more about finance right i'm not mm. you know i also was uh envir an environmentalist um thinking more in terms of ecology and the natural world and you know for me finance was like what the bad guys did and so <laughs> um <Like> but, <laughs> but given you know the scale of the problem and the resources we need we need really smart people to figure out how to bring the finance to 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 make the things happen that that, that have to happen and of course as you said climate change is going faster than any of us thought then and so i would have to say well i shouldn't have gone faster then as well well i think you went about as fast as anyone could have <laughs> gone john <laughs> uh, but really thank you so much for taking the time to do this it's so great to hear about your experience and your history i think it's going to be so valuable for our listeners those who know you and those who might not um you know really understanding what a legacy you're leaving here and uh, not really leaving, I know, but uh, changing, eventually you will ha you'll have a new role, but um, you know, leaving from the city of Cambridge and just the leadership and, and thank you so much for all of that and for being a great colleague and someone I could look to and be inspired by uh, over all these years that it, it's been so appreciated and thank you for all of your work in this space. Oh, thank, thank you, I always enjoy talking with you and working with you over over the years so um i'm sure we'll stay connected absolutely i'm not we're right down the street from each other so <laughs> awesome well thanks john have a great uh take a little break for retirement i would take yeah. at least a little break this is heavy work we're doing <laughs> yes. all right take care okay bye Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. 
You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?